You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one podcast in all things marketing, advertising, and communications. I'm your host, Ted Lau. And today on the show, we have Tim Nudd. Tim is the editor-in-chief of the Clio Awards and the editor of Muse by Clio. He is also the host of Tagline, a podcast about the making of classic ads. Tim, how's it going? Good, Ted. Thanks for having me on. Man, so you're hailing from Maine. I think that's what we were talking about right before we got started here. What's it like over there? I do live in Maine. It's, it's lovely. This has been a nice place to kind of ride out the last 18 months, I will say. Can't imagine having, you know, being in New York over the past couple of years, but as much as I love New York. But yeah, I've been up here really over a decade now, and it's kind of a nice spot to watch the advertising world unfold from. Yeah, absolutely. And so advertising definitely has changed, and we'll kind of get into that as we dive a little bit deeper. I wanted to first maybe hear about your origin story. You know, you've done this for a while, but clearly, where where'd you come from? How'd you get here? Yeah, I mean, I went to school in St. Louis at Washington University, and I'm from the Chicago area. So, you know, Midwestern kid, fell in love with journalism in school and, you know, moved to New York right after graduation. And at first, the first gig I had in New York was actually a magazine all about the energy business. So oil and gas. And I worked there for a couple of years and you know, it's probably as big of a story as oil and gas is in the world. It's probably the least creative industry that exists. Not all that so exciting, no? It's not that thrilling. I mean, you know, I'm sure your your listeners will be surprised to learn. It's a little bit stale and dry. So after a few years, I thought, wow, I got to get out of here and cover some sort of creative business, right? So I found what was interesting about advertising was there wasn't a ton of coverage of it. All of the coverage of it was being done by the trades, you know, occasionally a commercial or a campaign would break into pop culture, you know, around the Super Bowl. But there wasn't really any any serious journalism being done around it or not not a lot outside of the trades. And, you know, the music industry, movies, all these other great industries have really established coverage systems around them and thousands of people are writing about every bit of minutia in those industries. And I just I took a look at creative advertising. I thought that would be fun to cover just because there's not too many people taking it seriously as a cultural artifact. And why don't we try that? So yeah, in the late 90s, I joined Adweek. And I was there for a long time, eventually became the creative editor there for about eight years. And a couple of years ago, in, in 2018, I was speaking with Nicole Purcell, who's the president of the Clios. And she always wanted to start content side of the business. You know, they're a very well respected uh, legacy brand in advertising awards, of course, going all the way back to 1959. And they didn't really have a whole lot of content. So I felt like my time at Adweek was sort of wrapping up anyway. I wanted something new and was able to move over to the Clio's. And we built a whole new operation called Muse. So musebyclio.com. We cover creative campaigns every day. And what's interesting about the Clio's, you know, they have all, all sorts of categories for awards, right? So what we did was we created a website for coverage of creativity that really mapped what the Clio Awards are like. So Clio's got a great Clio entertainment program looking at trailers and movie posters. So we have a, a film and TV and gaming section of Muse. We have the Clio Music Awards, which is just a fantastic award show all about great music marketing and use of music in marketing. And so we have a music, uh, a music vertical on Muse as well. And same is true with sports, uh, health, 
uh, we started a cannabis award show recently. So we therefore started a cannabis vertical on Muse as well. So for me, it's been really exciting just to, you know, explore creativity in different industries. You know, my, my bread and butter at Adweek for, was obviously brand marketing. You know, I, I know, I know the most about that. I was very plugged into the creative agency scene, creating that brand marketing. But what's been really fun at Clio's is to, you know, look at music marketing, for example, which is not a big focus at AdAge or Adweek. Look at sports marketing deeply, really dive into health and wellness, you know, on the health side. So for me, it was sort of eye-opening. It's, it's been a, a way to kind of open my aperture of what's creativity mean, what kind of great work is out there in industries that I wasn't covering before. And honestly, it's been really fun starting something from scratch as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Views by Clio didn't exist before I joined a couple of years ago. We spent a few months figuring out what it would look like, brought in a couple of friends to help me write for it. And it's been a fantastic experience for the last three years, kind of building this brand. That's great. Now, with regards to, you said cannabis vertical, I wanted to understand that a bit. Up here in Canada, there's a lot of restrictions in terms of what you can and cannot advertise. And I, I know that the platforms like Facebook and Google, you have a lot of limitations. So can you share a bit about how those advertisers have been successful in cannabis? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the same is true down here in the US with restrictions, right? I mean, it's illegal federally. Many states have legalized cannabis over the the past bunch of years. Um, But yeah, I mean, the challenge for marketers has been incredible just trying to get their messages out there. Uh, No national broadcast work is allowed at all, obviously. And even in social, it's very tricky. You know, brands are having their Instagram pages taken down at a moment's notice. So it's very difficult. But, you know, we at Muse, we have a weekly Q&A series with leaders in the cannabis space called Higher Calling. And it's interesting just to get their perspectives every week on how they're dealing with those challenges. You know, one big thing that we've seen in the Clio Cannabis Awards is just fantastic design and brand work in the cannabis space, you know, not, not necessarily as much creative advertising per se, but the, the brand design, the packaging, all that work that's being done in cannabis is wonderful. We award a lot of that work in the Clio Cannabis Awards, and we try to cover as much creative advertising happening in the space as, as there is. A lot of that, quite frankly, is out of home because then you can be sure that it's legal where it's appearing. Social media, it's like I said, it's a lot more tricky because that stuff can pop up you know, people can view that stuff in states where it's not legal. So all those things are incredibly tricky. But I, I do think that that industry is poised for a breakout. You know, hopefully, at least from from the industry's point of view, hopefully it becomes nationally legal not too long from now. And I think after, when that happens, you will start seeing, you know, you'll see cannabis ads on the Super Bowl. So it's an interesting time for that industry. And, you know, I think one thing I've always learned in creativity is that you often do your your best work when you're kind of hemmed into a box. And so that's certainly true with these folks. You know, they're entrepreneurs in sort of the Wild West right now. And it's fun to see them try to navigate that. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm a New England Patriots fan. And so I think where you are, you probably are too. Maybe you're not. I don't know. You're from the Midwest. But Rob Gronkowski, you know, has that whole CBD thing. So maybe have an ad in the Super Bowl for his CBD brand. You never <laughs> exactly. know. A lot of celebrities in the space, actually. You know, I'm sure you know Jim Belushi is very involved. And we have a, a higher calling Q&A with him coming up in October on our site. So, you know, a lot of a lot of interesting things. And, and you know, the other thing I would say about cannabis is, you know, it's it's a it's an industry that's also very focused on righting the wrongs of the war on drugs. And there's a lot of folks still in prison, you know, based on 
laws that are now outdated. And so groups like the Last Prisoner Project are doing wonderful work to try to free some of these folks. And there's a real strong uh, social purpose uh, mission built into many of these companies that operate in that space. And it's wonderful to see that, you know, the brand marketing world in general is moving toward purpose, but it's baked into cannabis from the beginning, no pun intended, <laughs> just because, you know, it has been such a, a difficult industry for folks who were, who were sort of caught up in the, in the war on drugs over the past 20, 30 years during the era of, of prohibition. So that's an interesting uh, angle uh, within that industry. That's been wonderful, you know, wonderful to, to take a look at as well. You were talking about purpose marketing, which is something definitely I think the industry is moving clearly towards. What industries have you felt that were leading the charge and where do you think there's a particular vertical that might do well to step it up over there? Yeah, well, you know, what I find interesting, you know, just to take a step back, we're obviously as a as a culture, as a species, just, you know, as a as a planet, we're we're facing pretty existential crises, both things like climate change, things like misinformation, fake news, just our, you know, the fabric of the society is fraying in some ways. So, you know, I, I think that the companies that have really been the prime movers in this space, probably not surprisingly, have been companies that are really into the outdoors, you know, the Patagonias of the world, the REIs of the world, because it's in their interest, right? So, I think a lot of purpose-based work really is best when it comes out of some sort of interest from the company that's real. I don't think every single company all the time has to be addressing these things. I mean, I think we're human, right? We 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 want to be entertained as much as we want to be educated. But having said that, you know, I think most companies, if they're not already, they do need to sit down and say, what can we do to help our culture along and send something positive out into the world and go beyond communications that are just designed to sell things. Um, I think that's, you know, most companies that are far along enough on the path with millennials and Gen Z, they understand this. They understand that they're, if they don't do this, that it's going to be a problem from a business standpoint. But, you know, beyond that, it's just, it's the right thing to do. Like, let's take stock of where we are. Let's see how our company contributes either to the problem or to a solution. And, you know, let's try to bend our strategies towards something more positive. And, you know, you see this everywhere and it's, it's almost, you know, listen, some companies have been ridiculed for sort of overstepping in this area or doing things that aren't necessarily built into their DNA. But I say, you know what, like, let's, let's have some missteps. Let's try at least. And so I think, you know, most companies, uh, I think are on board with this, realizing that the, the ultimate goal of any company can't just be profit anymore, but there's a long way to go. I think COVID has thrown a wrench in everybody's plans. You know, so many companies had to pivot towards short-term strategies, but purpose is a, is the long-term strategy. It's it's about where we're heading as a culture. And, you know, in the absence sometimes of of leadership at the government level, I think private companies can can and, and do make an enormous difference. And, you know, I look back at I'm sure we'll talk about this, but I have a, a podcast a tagline, sort of a 30 for 30, kind of looking back at classic advertising and how it was made. And you look at something like, you know, a company like P&G, right, where they they have such interesting, they've evolved so much just in the last 10 years, right, with, you know, always like a girl and with, you know, the talk and the look and the choice, uh, the spots dealing with racism. I mean, this is a company that 10, 20 years ago really was all about profit, right? And it took one person, you know, Mark Pritchard, a chief brand officer over there. It took him and his personal journey 
to really steer that company towards something different. And, you know, I think that they've become a leading voice out there in the world now. And it's, fa it's fascinating to see that and the power of advertising and the, the media weight and the dollars that these companies can put behind their messaging. You know, it dwarfs anything that artists or activists can do. So bringing artists and activists into your world, into the world of marketing and really having something to say that's meaningful. I think it's good for the world and it's good for business. You guys are grading the judging. You're judging the for the awards of the the folks that have uh, applied. Do you look solely at the piece of content, or do you actually look a little bit deeper? Given we're talking about purpose marketing, do you actually look a little bit deeper? Are they actually these companies living their values, or are they just virtue signaling? It does does that weigh into how the campaigns are judged? So I will I'll put put a disclaimer on this, which is that I'm not involved in the program side. I'm not really involved in the, the process of judging. I do go to judging. I sit in jury rooms and listen to folks. So I, I know some of what goes on in there. I mean, listen, judging doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, people bring both their individual points of view to it and they naturally are going to wonder, like, is this piece of work a one-off? Is it sort of being, was it made for awards or, or is there a real commitment to this, to this cause? I think there's been some purpose fatigue in jury rooms over the last few years. So I think that's helped to weed out some of the perhaps more cynical attempts to, to jump on the purpose bandwagon. I don't want to speak for my team on the award side, but I think they do a great job of sort of monitoring that situation. But again, I think awards play a role as well in helping move the industry towards doing more good. You know, is it the worst thing in the world to want to create something that, that, that has an impact in real people's lives? even if some of the underlying motivation is to win an award. You know, I don't know. And I think, I think once the, the awards are handed out, you know, it, it gets a lot of attention on certain causes. So you know, I think in general, awards have a positive impact on the industry. I wouldn't be working at Clio's if I, if I thought otherwise. I think there's been mixed reaction in jury rooms to purpose work, but I think overall it's a net positive, you know, both for companies and their business and then in, in the way that, that awards can amplify that. Now you touched upon the short-termness of advertising because people had to adjust over COVID. What have you seen? Like, what, what, what trends have you seen? How have marketers and advertisers, the guys that are playing at the top of the game, how have they adapted? Yeah, you know, I think overall during COVID, I think I've seen, unfortunately, I've seen a, some regression among marketers who, you know, they're just a little bit, concerned about saying the wrong thing. I mean, when, when, when times are tough, I think that leads to generally more conservative work. I think we're coming out of that, hopefully. I was disappointed to see that, that humor kind of took a backseat for a long time. I think humor is a very wonderful tool in advertising. I think people often mistake humor for being meaning something's frivolous. I think humor is actually a really deep, profound way of the humans use to process difficult things. So I'm glad to see that's making a comeback. But, you know, overall, I think as we sort of slowly come out of this difficult situation that, that marketers are starting to embrace, again, really the fundamental difficulties of, of what they do for a living, which is trying to stand out in a crowded market. That's always been the challenge facing marketers. It's become more complicated, obviously, as media has proliferated. It's become a much more crowded space, much more complicated space to navigate. And I think many marketers have taken that complicated space and they've turned their own marketing into something more complicated when they probably don't need to. So, you know, the, the, the marketers out there that I see, 
you know, they're just finding interesting ways to stand out in the market. You know, I look at something like what Reddit did on the Super Bowl with a five second ad, you know, that was all copy that you couldn't, re- you couldn't possibly read in, in the five seconds that they bought. Now that was everywhere the next day on a very small budget. I mean, they, it was a, it was a regional Super Bowl spot and they didn't pay a ton for it. And, you know, that's that sort of hacking of the Super Bowl, you know, and, and that's not necessarily new. You look back 10 years ago, what old Milwaukee was doing with these funny regional buys with Will Ferrell and in these crazy, weird markets around the country. So, I mean, it's just finding new and interesting ways to sort of get yourself out there, get yourself noticed in ways that are entertaining and fun and, and people want to consume them. So COVID, obviously, I mean, it's ridiculous to even have to say it's a, it's been such a huge downer for for everybody and marketers as well and we're also all just people we're all just we're all coming out of this together right so i think that as as people get more confident as as the folks running the marketing departments of these companies start feeling better about the future then you know hopefully the the confidence in the marketing will come back and we'll see the return to to great creativity i do think there was a, a bit of a downturn there for a while Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Talked about how companies, a lot of them have more power than artists do, at least monetary wise. And when they team up with particular artists, it can be very powerful. Now, I grew up listening to a lot of, you know, punk and, and 
grunge and, and that kind of stuff where, you know, the thought of partnering with a brand would be like, oh my God, you're selling out, you're selling out your soul. But then you got, you know, the Michael Jacksons of the world doing Pepsi and all that kind of stuff. How have you seen that progression of artists joining and teaming up with, with brands that probably, you know, a decade or two ago wouldn't be doing it? But I think because revenues on the, on the music side, on the recording side has, has dipped that they had to find a way to get their brand and, and, you know, get paid. But how have you seen that, that transition and how have they been able to preserve their authenticity as it were, right? Without quote unquote being a sellout or whatever. (laughs) I don't think there is such thing as a sellout anymore. You know, I think it's, it's, it's swung so far in the other direction that it's a badge of honor when an athlete or a musician teams up with a brand. I mean, you look at what Mm -hmm. Travis Scott has done in Fortnite and as long as the, as long as the partnership is beneficial to both sides, I think it's wonderful. I think what's happening, the way that advertising is seeping into entertainment, seeping into music, seeping into sports, all those, you know, it strengthens both sides. It strengthens the advertising and and it strengthens in some ways and, and gets more reach and more revenue for the artists. So I see no problem with that. I think, you know, I think it's a very old idea that you're selling out. You know, that's like an 80s idea, right? It's like Neil Young with the whole, this song's for you or whatever it was. But what I find interesting though is, is other types of artists, not necessarily celebrity artists, but activists, filmmakers, documentarians, you know, people tackling really difficult topics in society. When they, when they team up with brands and find a voice through a brand, I think that's fascinating. And to me, you know, a great example of that, and we had a whole episode on this, again, is the Like a Girl campaign for, for P&G. Lauren Greenfield, she directed that. She was a documentarian. And her story is fascinating because she spent decades critiquing advertising, critiquing its effect on young girls specifically, and how detrimental it was, all the imagery that, that advertising was putting out into the world, and how difficult it was for, for girls in America to get past the expectations that that advertising created. Lauren, rather than sort of fighting from outside, then you know she came in and helped develop the Like a Girl concept. You know, used her documentary skills to create that film, which remains one of the great sort of social experiments ever made in advertising. It went viral online, and then P and G, seeing how well it was doing, then put it on the Super Bowl. So she reached a hundred million plus with the original video, even more with the Super Bowl, and just through one project that took her, you know, a few weeks, reached to a degree so many more people than she reached with her documentary work. And she was a celebrated documentarian. So. To me, it's like the the creators, the not necessarily the, the celebrity a talent, but also the talent behind the camera, you know. And, and companies are 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 doing this more and more, bringing in folks that have different experiences and different perspectives to, to actually create the work behind the camera as well as in front of it. And I think those talents are allowing brands to find a new voice and find a purpose and meaning. Uh, they don't have to go it alone. They can actually, you know, bring in artists who. Who've been engaged in these worlds for for years and years to help them, and so I find that dynamic to be fascinating. So, if you look at the credits behind so many of the great campaigns that we've seen over the last couple of years, you'll find people that have often been working, you know, in a much smaller way on their own personal projects, and I think that's super inspiring. Now, I I'm going to ask this question. So, you know, being in the industry, I've been I've been in the the marketing and advertising industry for for almost two decades, and you've been around the block a couple of times, and I remember when I first started and, and looking at other ads that were just 
garbage, right? Not not very good ads. There's so many of them out there that it would it would make my skin crawl a little bit. Now over over time, because I I would drive and see a billboard and I complain about it. My wife's like, okay, just just drop it. This like six ad that you <laughs> you commented on on this road trip. You know, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Is there a place for you know? The, the sofa king call now ad that 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 people have like is is that actually a thing well listen i mean 95 percent of advertising you're right is not worthy of, of a clio award for sure probably probably more than that probably uh, more you know i i don't find a ton of value in that and, and you know that the the companies that i admire that i would want to purchase from you know they tend to have more nuanced and entertaining and interesting marketing i mean so I don't know. If, is there a place for it? I mean, I think it's always going to exist. But does it drive you nuts? Like, I mean, like, you know, that, that's the thing. Like, I kind of have to, have to block it out and I kind of have to ignore <laughs> the garbage yeah. that's out there. Right. But you, because you, you're so deep into it, like even stuff that I probably think is, is good or great. You're probably like, eh, that's just table stakes. So how do you, I don't know about that. How do you survive on your platforms when you're watching the Super Bowl or whatnot? And it's like, oh, that was, that was disappointing, <laughs> right? Like, you know, how do you shut that out? Well, I try not to be, a, 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 you know, too much of a snob about it. It's funny. My kids, when we sit around watching, we rarely watch TV with, with commercials, but we do watch football on the weekends. They went through a phase of having me rate the commercials and whatever, whenever there was an ad That's break. Awesome. So that, that what was does a, dad think? How's exactly. dad really? Dad knows about this stuff. But yeah, I mean, listen, local commercials drive me nuts. You know, there's one that plays in Maine up here all the time. It's uh, it's for a place called Chapter 11 Furniture. And they literally read the company name like 15 times in 30 seconds. And it's just, you know, that's... <laughs> Do they have star wipes too? <laughs> I mean, that's a certain strategy, right? And it probably works for them, but it's it's creatively miserable. It's like a sledgehammer to the face. <laughs> And I have a hard time with it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I am a snob, but you know, luckily most of the work that I get pitched, I think, you know, to write about or certainly the stuff that, that intrigues me as I'm watching TV is, you know, I mean, I look at primetime TV and none of it's like wretched, right? Like none of it. I mean, some of it is, but I think if you're watching a decent, you know, if people are spending a decent amount to advertise on a show, then most of the time they've found a passable agency to get it done. So I don't completely cringe. And even when advertising is super bad, right? It's like got some sort of comic factor. I, mem- I remember those guys, Rhett and Link, who used to make intentionally bad local commercials. I don't know if you ever saw any of those. Those are worth looking up. I think Errol Morris said that um, Rhett and Link were his favorite commercial directors because they would they did parodies of local ads and it was it was wonderful. This was probably 10, 15 years ago now, but... Worth checking those guys out on YouTube anyway. Let's get to your uh, your podcast tagline. You said it's a 30 for 30 for classic ads. How'd you get into it? What do you guys talk about? Yeah, so it really started in 2019, which was the 60th anniversary of the Clios. So we spent a lot of time that year looking back at classic work. And my buddy Dave, who writes for the site, I asked him if he wouldn't mind sort of picking 10 or 15 classic campaigns and reaching out to someone who worked on them and just get a get a little story out of them. So he did. And we, you know, we really just interviewed one person for each campaign. And and it was really classic work, like, you know, the absolute bottle campaign or or a Nike, you know, the original Just Do It campaign. And we got stories back that we'd never heard about some of these ads that we thought we knew. 
you know, so well. You know, I remember Susan Hoffman at Widen and Kennedy came back and told us that everybody in the Widen and Kennedy creative department hated the fact that they had to use Just Do It that Dan Wyden had come up with. I never knew. I never knew any of that. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we, instead of just talking to one person, you know, try to track down six or seven or eight people from a classic campaign and sort of record them all separately and then kind of weave it into narrative, you know? So the episodes that we make, they're 45 minutes to an hour typically. And they, they, I sort of tell the story as the host and it's sort of Gimlet style narrative storytelling where I fold in bits of audio from everybody as, as we go along. We fold in audio from the commercials and we really try to tell the story of a, the creation of a campaign from all different angles. So obviously the, the creatives, the agency creatives are, are very critical, but we also talk to strategists. We talk to the clients. We talk to sometimes the on-screen talent, sometimes the, you know, the folks who did the music. We really try to consider a campaign from all different disciplines. And we did a bunch of these for season one, and we're working on a bunch more for season two. If your listeners would want to listen to one, I think the Dos Equis episode, the beginning of season one is, is a special one. I think the, the Motel 6 campaign was also a really interesting one to cover because that one goes back to 1986. And we talked to the folks who made those very first spots and how the campaign evolved over 34 years. It was an interesting campaign too, because the Richards group who created that work ended up getting fired off the account sort of right as we we're about to put out the episode so that we had to sort of revisit it. But yeah, I mean, a lot of other interesting work in there as well. You know, we, we covered Volkswagen, the little Darth Vader Super Bowl commercial. We took a pretty sweeping view of the Got Milk campaign, another one going back pretty far to the early 90s. And so, you know, what I really think it does is what's, what's interesting about work that's supposedly inspiring. Like if you go to the Clio Awards Winners Gallery, for example, it can all seem sort of fully formed, right? Like, oh, how did they ever come up with this incredible thing? And I think what Tagline does is it breaks it down and it shows you that it's not, you know, it's not unattainable. It, like this great work was really the result of many, many missteps along the way, or, you know, the, the campaign almost got killed at this juncture, or we had this terrible idea at the very beginning that then morphed into this other idea. So to me, that's even more inspiring than just looking at a finished piece of work that's really beautiful, where you can't really imagine yourself sort of spontaneously creating something like that. So I think de delving into the creative process really takes the campaign off the pedestal in many ways and really you know, shows you like, you, you, know, you can do this. You just got to put in the work and you just got to go down the path. And then I think the other thing is, Exploring the creative process in general is just fascinating, like how people's minds work. And then the clients too. The clients have been sort of, to me, the most surprising part of this project, which, you know, everyone disses the clients, right? Like the clients are the, the, the non-creative people. They're the, they're the ones that mostly just kill the good ideas and so on. Like the clients I've interviewed have been incredible. Like literally often the, some of the most creative thinkers on the episodes Someone like Tim Ellis at Volkswagen, he's now the CMO of the NFL. He sort of steered that work. The Dosecki's client was fantastic. The P&G clients that did the Always campaign. So many of these clients, and I think that is sort of telling, right? Like you have a really creative person as the CEO or, or sorry, as the CMO or, or the brand manager. If you have a, a really creative, passionate you know, person who's really interested in creativity, that you can actually create great work that way. So I think these episodes, I also wanted a balance of them being insightful, but also just entertaining. We work in an entertaining industry. All the content around it, the coverage of it, 
should be entertaining as well. This, you know, this goes back to when I was at Adweek, my colleagues and I sort of inherited a magazine that was really quite dry. You know, it was written, almost felt like it was written for media buyers. And we just wanted to bring that same joy and sort of passion and, and fun that, that's in the industry and that's in the industry's work to Adweek. And, and I've tried to do the same at the Clios, and I'm particularly trying to do it with Tagline. I hope these episodes are, are entertaining to people and that they sort of in spite of themselves will walk away at the end learning something about the business as well. That's very interesting. I, I actually wanted to ask you, you talked about you know some of the crises that we're going through as a society these days and misinformation being one of them. And given that your podcast tagline talks about classic ads, you know, classic ads were at times the originator of fake news, right? Like everyone remembers Got Milk from the 90s, but growing up in the 80s, there was a tagline for, for milk in Canada that was like, you know, milk, it does a body good. Or, you know, everyone remembers, like, I think there were some ads about cigarettes and how cigarettes were actually good for your lungs and stuff like that. And I, I'd, I'd be interested to see, you know, if you've done any kind of expose or investigative journalism, some kind of, you know, deep dive into how the industry has changed. Because, you know, you'll get canceled if you start saying stuff like that now. <laughs> right. But back then, I mean... It took a long time for me to convince my parents that milk is actually not that good for you. I have some friends that are vegan that were like, no, this is that, that stuff is not meant for human consumption, right? And and now it's like, oh, what, what are you talking about? Milk does it pretty good, right? So have you addressed anything like that? Or? We, we haven't done any reappraisals like that, but it's interesting that you mentioned milk does a body good because that that line was really the reason, you know, that Got Milk came along. And it wasn't because it was false necessarily. It, it was because it wasn't connecting, right? Like this was when, you know, this was in the 90s when milk, milk consumption had been dropping for decades, right? Going back to the 60s and 70s. I mean, people were drinking less and less milk every year. And it was because milk does a body good was just not how people thought about milk. People thought about milk only when they didn't have it, which was, you know, if you if you have pour a bowl of cereal and you go to the, the fridge and then, oh, I don't have any milk or you know, you have a cup of coffee and oh, I don't have, milk was never the thing, never the focus of what people were thinking about. It was never a product they really thought about on its own. It was a product they thought about in relation to other products. And they only cared about it when they didn't have it. So it was milk does a body good. Okay. What, how people responded to that line was great. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I'm going to have a diet Coke instead, regardless. So it just wasn't connecting on an emotional way. And so I think, you know, the whole story of, of that particular evolution from milk does a body good to got milk. Is a really interesting one in terms of marketers. I think milk does a body good is a, is an interesting example of a line that marketers want to be true, or want they that's the thing they would like to be true. But the truth is, no one cares about milk unless unless they don't have it. So having a mind shift on the marketing side from the former to the latter is is a great example of brand evolution. And there's lots of lots of those things like that. But it would be interesting to revisit like a smoking campaign for sure i'm not sure how it would fit into my framework uh, but i, I don't I, know i just i thought that'd be interesting or, or you know you as a kid you know you, oh i'm thirsty i'm gonna drink some seven up i'm gonna drink some pop or something like that right and and yeah you know, that, that's that's like as for any sports you know you see the athletes you know they used to drink pop and you never see an athlete actually drink that stuff because <laughs> right. it's, it's not good for you right. you can't play a game after that so i don't think we haven't done any episodes about products that I think are bad for you. And we haven't celebrated their creative achievements 
which I think is, you know, probably good. It would be interesting, though. You're right. Like, soda is a very good example. You know, a company like Coca-Cola has done wonderful creative marketing over the years. I'm not sure how I would feel about doing a tagline episode about their work at this point, because you're right. I think it's they're creating a a craving that's not necessarily the greatest craving to have. So, yeah, I got to think more about that one. All right, maybe uh, let's let's go into a bit of our rapid fire. We have a rapid fire round where we're just we ask our guests a bunch of random questions just to get to know you. Sure. We'll start off with maybe just some industry stuff. Like, is there a particular marketing book or or uh, advertising book that changed your life? Oh, geez. Well, you know, I've I've read a bunch of the old ones like The Ogilvies and Jerry Delafamina. That stuff's awesome. We have an interesting story on Muse today, actually, about advertising textbooks. Robin Landa wrote one called Advertising by Design. That's apparently really cool. I haven't read it myself, but Greg Braun, who transitioned from industry CCO to advertising professor, raves about it. And so uh, he did a little interview with Robin, the author. So that sounds cool. But I have a hard time making time to read marketing books, quite honestly. I think Teresa Iezzi, who was the former creative editor at AdAge, wrote an interesting book that I have called The Idea Writers, which was really digging into kind of doing what we do with Tagline, which is kind of digging into interesting campaigns. She talked to a lot of folks this was probably 10, 15 years ago now, but I found a lot of use out of that one. You said you watch sports with your kids. What sports do you watch? Well, my kids are really into the NFL right now. I'm a soccer person. I played soccer in high school and college and I've been trying to steer them in that direction. My, they like to play soccer, but they don't love to watch it necessarily. So I think part of that is it's it's on early in the morning, like the, you know, the, the European leagues, which are... Kind of- you watch like Premier League? Is that what you watch? I do. I try to. So you follow, are you watching Ted Lasso because of it? I love Ted Lasso. I think that's fantastic. Everyone loves Ted Lasso. You know, it's funny, Great like show. the two the two sports that I, well, I wouldn't call the other one a sport, but the two things that I was into in high school were soccer and chess. And between Ted Lasso mm. and Queen's Gambit, I feel like they're finally getting their due <laughs> in the media. Queen's Gambit was also beautiful. If you had a particular superpower you could choose, what would it be? Probably to fly. Would you prefer to be a soccer player or a chess player? I'd prefer to be a soccer player because, you know, come on, I'm past my soccer playing days. But listen, like being in a stadium and and scoring a goal and hearing 50,000 people cheer, I have a hard time imagining it can get that feeling out of playing a chess game. Probably not. Well, who's your team? You know, I, I have a soft spot for Man United just because, you know, Tim Howard was their goalie a while back. I don't have a Premier League team, really. My dad supported Spurs. He He grew up in London and and he's a Spurs guy. I, I'm I'm fine with Spurs, but you know, I would follow in the '90s and early 2000s. I would follow the American players that were playing in the Premier League, and at the time, it was a lot of goalies. You know, it was like Keller and Friedel, and then later on Tim Howard. So I was so thrilled when Tim Howard became the Man United goalie that I sort of went all in and became sort of a Man United fan. And he only played there a couple seasons, but I sort of kept up with them. So I I, I suppose I would have to say Man U. Do you ever go to a game? I've never been to Old Trafford. I've been to a few. You know, what's funny is in 96, when Casey Keller was becoming uh, sort of famous in the Premier League, he had a few really amazing games for for Leicester. Uh, I went over to the UK um, with my job at the time, the, the oil and gas publication. And I took a little trip up to Leicester and interviewed Keller at Filbert Street. Wow. It's like interviewing God for you, isn't it? It was amazing. It was so cool. I went to the I went to their training ground and I got to, you know, they gave me like, I oh, think wow. they were just thrilled to have an American journalist kind of come over and, and had takes any interest in, in them at all. Mm-hmm. And, 
yeah, that was one of my great memories of uh, of Premier League stuff. But and I've been to Ibrox in Glasgow. I saw I saw Rangers play one, one year, um, but haven't been to a, too many stadiums in the UK. I gotta, I'd love to do it more. What was your favorite band as a kid? I gotta say REM, probably. Although I don't know if you've heard of this Australian band. They're called Hoodoo Gurus. I really randomly got into them. But I think the first concert I saw when I was sixteen was REM at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago. And this was in the days when you had to camp out for for tickets. And some oh. friends of mine camped out, and they, I did, I did not. So I was just the beneficiary of this. But randomly, they got first row orchestra seats. So the very first concert I went to was an arena show with REM, and I literally had my hands on the stage. Peter Buck was five feet away in this direction. Michael Stipe five feet in the other direction, and I was spoiled ever since. Because that's basically the best experience you're going to ever have. Did you actually have Michael Stipe sweat on you? <laughs> no, but I yelled at Peter Buck and he responded. I was like, I screamed like, yeah, Peter. And he sort of shrugged with this sort of, gosh, I'm <laughs> great. And yeah, I think I did it backwards. I had my best experience first. That's fantastic. If you could meet some, well, you've met some famous people, it sounds like. If you could meet someone in the past, real or fiction, uh-huh. who would it be and why? Oh, geez. I know people say Jesus to this a lot, but I'm going to say John Lennon. Mm-hmm. I think probably because it was so tragic, you know, that he was taken so soon. And I know he was kind of crazy. I read the Beatles biography, the Bob Spitz one, relatively recently. And uh, I know John was a little bit crazy, but it would have been fun to at least you know, just hang out with him for maybe not for dinner, maybe for lunch. <laughs> not not a pint? <laughs> maybe stay away from the substances, but yeah. <laughs> Do you have a hobby? Kids, I guess, are my hobby right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I do play a little bit, bit of music. You know, I like to do some writing that's not advertising. But uh, yeah, mostly right now, honestly, like I've been pouring my time and energies into this podcast. It's a, it's a whole new type of storytelling for me. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy I've, throughout my career, I've written typically 500 to 1,000 word stories, sometimes even less, you know, in our blogging days, like when we, when we started a blog at Adweek. And so... This has been very different. I mean, just today, in fact, I, I'm working on a season two episode on the Skittles, the old Skittles campaign from 2004 to 2008, you know, that Shiat Day New York did. Very famous campaign, really fun stuff. And I kind of went overboard with it. And I ended up interviewing 14 people for it, which is four more than any of the episodes for season one. And so here I am with 14 transcripts and like trying to piece that into a coherent hour-long episode that tells the proper story of the campaign and uses all those voices is it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's also honestly the most fun that I've ever had just trying to tell a story in this format. And I'm also not used to talking my stories. Like I'm used to writing my stories. So the whole recording process has been interesting. I've learned a lot along the way with that as well. And I think, uh, you know, they're sounding better now than they were (laughs) at the very beginning. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, most I'm I'm lucky that I'm I'm finding fulfillment you know creatively through my through my work stuff right now. So using ads from all spectrums, all different kind of verticals and industries, is there a particular type of ad that you would, if you got to you know direct and create one, uh, would it be in a particular industry or particular style? Interesting. I haven't really thought about that. What I find interesting is a lot of people, I think, would answer that question by saying sports. Like so many people are into that. And that's the one, and I like sports, but that's the one 
industry that I have a tough time connecting to the creative in. You know, I find that it's all montage, montage, montage. There's so much sort of almost stocky feeling to the to, to a lot of the ads in sports. So I guess you know the the ones that do stand out. Obviously, Nike is an exception. I mean, they just won the they just won the Emmy this week for that incredible spot that edited you know different like the split screen spot from last year that was so incredible. So I would say to me, sports has the lowest percentage of interesting creative to me. Like I, I feel like there's so much that could be done there because it's sports is like unlike anything else, right? In terms of the existing emotions and passions that are in it. I'm not saying that there's not. I mean, just if you look at the Clio sports winners, there there's incredible work being done in the industry. But I find myself being underwhelmed more so in that industry than than most others. So maybe I'd like to take a crack at trying something different, you know, within the, within the sports world. So where do you think, because you'd see it probably more than anyone else, or at least one of them, where do you see advertising going you know, now that we're... I don't know, are we coming out of the pandemic or maybe we're trying to emerge out of it? Where where does this all go? So, I mean, I think this comes back to the purpose conversation. I know people are kind of tired of hearing it, but I do think as we continue in the next 5, 10, 15 years, problems in society are not going away. And I think that the power that brands and corporations wield in the social space, both through money and just through influence, is enormous. And so I think it's going to be incumbent upon advertisers to find some way to help us become a better society. You know, I mean, it was for many, many years, it was enough to just sell things. And now I think every company is starting to realize that, that with a share, uh, you know, a large share of voice in the culture, that, that there comes a responsibility with that. And so COVID has, like I said before, I think a lot of companies switched from long-term planning to short-term tactics based on what their companies needed at the time. But there will be very soon a switch back and, and companies are going to have to think about what they're going to offer to the world beyond lining the pockets of them, uh, you know, of their owners. And so that'll be interesting. I mean, I, I hope that people don't get too fatigued by that. I know that it's it's natural to look at that and feel cynical sometimes. But I find it very inspiring to see companies that are truly engaging and truly making a difference, not just for PR value, but for just because it's the right thing to do. So I think, you know, listen, I love creative advertising and, and the entertainment factor of it as much as anybody. And I'm, I hope that more entertaining, funny advertising gets made. But at the same time, I think you know, purpose is a real thing. It's not just a, a tactic. It's going to be our future, I think. And companies that do it well in a way that's that's inclusive and engaging and makes a difference to real people in their real lives, I think that's sort of the North Star in the next five, 10 years. Well, Tim, it was a pleasure to chat with you. Is there anything that you wanted to share with uh, young and upcoming advertisers or those that are at the mid-level or anyone, anyone that you want to share a message to before we end the call? Well, it's great to talk to you as well. Thanks for having me on. I would just say, I think tagline, which you can find at taglinepodcast.com or at musebycleo.com. I think it is, it's useful for, for younger creatives. I think it's entertaining. And like I said before, I think the stories are inspiring, not because they celebrate something that's you know impossible to attain, but that it shows sort of warts and all the process and that if you, if you engage and, and do the work and have some passion for, for what you're working on, 
um, that the creative ideas will come and you can create something that you're proud of as well. Warts and all. Amen. Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks, everybody, for another great episode of Marketing News Canada. Until next time. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.